Hello and welcome to the Viva Albertos podcast. My name is Ben Humphrey. I am the site manager at VivaAlbertos.com, a St. Louis Cardinals community. I'm joined today, July 26, 2015, by Ben Godar, an editor and writer at Viva Albertos. Ben, how's it going? Oh, it's going well. It's going well. Thank you. Glad to be glad to be back. Have a chance to to chat with you again. Yeah, I enjoy our podcast. I enjoy every podcast. But when you and I get together, because we live in the same city, uh, we actually sit around a table and look one another in the eye while we talk, uh, as opposed to doing it via Skype. Um, and so it's just a little bit more personal, a little bit more enjoyable. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're both drinking, and that helps as well. I think so. Yeah, uh, responsibly. We're drinking responsibly. We we are drinking responsibly. Uh, some beer helps the podcast juices get flowing. I think so. I think so. It doesn't always help the the technical uh, situation though, as we learned seconds ago. On a <laughs> but the folks at home will have no idea. So. Well, not well now they do. Now they do. I blew it. I blew it. So nothing went wrong. We're brilliant technicians. <laughs> Uh, this is absolutely our first time trying to record this. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, well, we're the All Star Break is a, in the rearview mirror, uh, and folks can probably just barely remember, if at all, the Cardinals losing three games in a row to, to the Pirates before the All Star Break and seeing their lead in the division uh, shrink considerably. Fans were a little bit worried, a little bit anxious going into the break. Uh, and you wrote a post about the strength of schedule the Cardinals would have after the All-Star break. Uh, not very strong. In fact, it's kind of weak, and mm-hmm. they've been the beneficiaries of that over the last few uh, games. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, they, uh, you know, they really came out of the All-Star break with a, I mean, if you could invent a schedule for the Cardinals to come out of the All-Star break into, I think this, is, this would be it. Uh, they uh, played 14 of their first 16 games at home. Um, against uh, fairly weak opponents uh, as well as we, we've kind of seen already. So, um, uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it's exactly what you would want for them uh, going forward. I believe they've got the, the Reds and the Rockies coming up, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, uh, both at home. So, obviously, those are a pretty, pretty winnable series. Uh, and then following that, they, uh, they do go back out on the road, but they go to, the uh, Johnny Cueto-less Cincinnati Reds, and then uh, and then to the Brewers as well before uh, they uh, play the Pirates at home on uh, August 11th is probably the next what you would consider really a you know serious uh, strong opponent that they face. So should really continue to kind of pile on the wins. Yeah, and you said Johnny Cueto-less Reds for folks who maybe are finding out by listening to our podcast. Oh my gosh. Because they were out on the lake or something all weekend. Yeah, I could have just broken it to them. You may have just broken the news. Uh, the Royals and Reds initially had a trade agreed to that would send Cueto to the Royals. Uh, there were some issues with the physicals of one of the minor leaguers, and so the trade was rescinded. Mm-hmm. And then they agreed to a trade again, another trade. So mm-hmm. Cueto is going to the Royals, and he is doing so um, on the eve of the Reds coming to St. Louis. Uh, the Cardinals will play the Reds six times in the next couple weeks, mm-hmm. and the Reds will be without their best pitcher, which is a positive development for the Cardinals. Absolutely, absolutely. But you look at that post-All-Star break schedule, three games against the Mets, two against the White Sox, one against the Royals, who are a very good team, and now we just got done with three against the Braves. The Cardinals won two of those games. 
they have built their lead back up to six games, and you look ahead, the Reds are not good, and they just got worse uh, for the near term by trading away Cueto and the Rockies, who the Cardinals host for four games beginning Thursday night, have been horrendous, uh, and they hit very poorly away from Coors Field, and then the Reds at the Reds again, and then at Milwaukee, and you have to think that that Milwaukee team's going to be a little bit weaker, mm-hmm. uh, that they will sell a couple of pieces before the 31st non-waiver trade deadline. So the Cardinals have a real opportunity here. They've already built up their lead in the division, but they have a mm-hmm. real opportunity to maintain it or build it a little bit more in the days ahead. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, the Brewers obviously have already traded away Aramis Ramirez. Uh, August 7th, by the time we play him, hopefully Adam Lind will be a Cardinal, and then, uh, you know, that'll be one less player <laughs> that they have as well. Uh, if he's not a Cardinal, I have a feeling he, he won't be wearing a Milwaukee Brewers jersey by that point, so... But you're right, it, you know, August 11th through the 13th, the Cardinals host the Pirates. That's going to be their next tough test. But then they play the Marlins for three. The Giants are a pretty good team. I think the Giants will probably make a trade at the deadline uh, to improve their club. That'll be tough. But then they have three against the Padres, who I think will be substantially weaker by then. Uh-huh. I think you'll yep. see the Padres trade away yep. a handful of players. Then they go to Arizona. And Arizona is not a very good team. No. So, you know, this schedule into August, there are some tough games. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. But there's a lot of opportunity there for the Cardinals to uh, either hold their lead or grow it. And you hope they're able to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that end of August uh, swing there, It's a, they have a, a, about a almost a two, week and a half to two-week West Coast road trip there, which, you know, can be tough. But they don't play the Dodgers, so you know they're really kind of just making their way through the you know mostly the, the the worst parts of the National League West. So even that doesn't look as daunting as it could be. Yeah. So you keep your fingers crossed, and then when you look at that schedule, and this always drives me nuts. Now they have a computer do it, uh, but it drives me nuts when the Cardinals, as you say, they have this West Coast road trip. So they go to San Diego, they go to Arizona. Then they go to San Francisco. They play the Giants on Sunday in San Francisco, and then they host the Nationals on Monday in St. Louis. I've never gotten why they don't make more of an attempt to get teams a day off when they're done with that West Coast road trip. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's, that's, some, that's some complicated uh, math and everything, you know, putting all those, all those dates together and you know, you got Rod Stewart concerts and all kinds of other exciting events, I'm sure, going on in various venues around the country. So Just put it into the algorithm. If you aren't going to let them have greenies, right? you know, no yep. amphetamines, yep. you know, just give right. them a day off. Give them a day off. Give them a day off. And put Rod Stewart's tour schedule in there as well. I mean, come yep. on, people. Come on. You can easily enter that. He's still out there on the road. <laughs> Actually, I think he might be in Vegas now. I don't know. That would be smart. I don't know. I don't know why I, I went to Rod Stewart, but I did. Uh, but you mentioned the Brewers. They traded uh, Armas Ramirez to the Pirates. Mm-hmm. That's a nice pickup for the Buckos. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, and uh, I mean, he's a you know he's a player I've I've always kind of kind of liked, kind of admired. Uh, again, I, I do. Part of me wanted to see him come to St. Louis and and Cincinnati so he could you know play for every single team in the National League Central, but. Uh, 
No, he was he was obviously the Cardinals opponent for a lot of years, but I just always kind of liked the way the way he played and, and watching him play out there. Um, you know, and I have been watching him this year too, and he's not he's he's certainly diminished. I I certainly understand why he's announced this is going to be his last year. So um, you know how much of a help he can be, I don't know, but you know there's definitely talent there. So. And it was sort of weird, you know, when you look at the Pirates roster, where does he fit in and those types of questions. You know, I mean, he plays third base, he could play first base, uh-huh. and I think we might see him at first base some. Um, but Zips and Steamer, they project him about .7, wins above replacement the rest of the way. So that's a useful player. I mean, Absolutely. it's not a world-beater uh, and he hasn't been a world beater. As you just said, he's diminished. I mean, you have to go back to 2012, you know, when he was a good player, a very good player. Uh-huh. Um, he hasn't been that since then. Um, but, you know, he's going to be around probably the 1.8 to 2 win total at the end of the year. Um, so a nice pickup uh, for the Pirates, potentially. You know, over, who knows, he could go Will Clark. And uh-huh. be even better. Uh, that's, yeah, that's the thing about these trades is it, it's really kind of rolling dice a little bit because uh-huh. you you don't actually know how they're going to work out. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I feel like he was a guy when he left Pittsburgh, they did not get a whole lot in return for him. It was back during those kind of really dark ages in Pittsburgh, and obviously he and he was very good in Pittsburgh, but then he had a lot of very good years in Chicago after that as well. And he seems like one of those talented players that came through Pittsburgh during that just long stretch of, of, of garbage that, you know, they, they had some talent and it, it went away and they got very little for it. Yeah, uh, the Cubs did not give the Pirates. I remember, I distinctly mm-hmm. remember when that trade was announced in mm-hmm. 2003 when the Cubs were going on their big run. Yeah. Uh, the Cardinals were, were pulling guys off of the street and just having them pitch. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was like a waste of the MV3 and Edgar Renteria, who was amazing, mm-hmm. um, that year. And I just remember when that deal was made, and I thought to myself, you got to be kidding me. That's all they gave up for Ramirez, mm-hmm. uh, to get Ramirez. Uh, and he was pretty good um, down the stretch. Not a world beater for the Cubs, but then he, you know, the next uh, several seasons, he hit very, very well uh, for the Cubs and was a very good pickup. Um, and he's just, he's got a... He's just a smooth player, uh, just fun to watch. Uh-huh. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed him, even though he's been beating up on the Cardinals uh-huh. uh, a lot during his career. I may have an outsized view of his skill uh, because of it, uh-huh. because it seems like he's always getting hits against the Cardinals. And so I am not excited to see him come up with men on base uh, against the Cardinals, potentially, down the stretch of the pennant race. I just looked up the uh, the trade with the Cubs, by the way. He was traded along with Kenny Lofton uh, and Cash to the Cubs for uh, Matt Brubach, who was a minor league player, uh, Jose Hernandez, and a player to be named later who turned out to be uh, top Cubs prospect, uh, Bobby Hill. Oh. So that was, uh, that was the deal. <laughs> yeah. So I think... Uh, I know, I know some people bristle at the who won a trade debate, but I think, uh, I think the Cubs won that trade. I, I think you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it was pretending. Hindsight's 20-20. I know at the time, 
you know, Matt Brubeck was high on a lot of prospect lists. And Bobby Hill was, I think, falling yeah. off of prospect lists. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, anyway. I remember watching him. I remember him being on, I think, the iCubs tickets. Uh, oh, yeah. Back then, my dad had season tickets. Um, but, yeah, I would say the Cubs won that deal. Uh, hopefully... Neither team wins the Ramirez deal because right. hopefully uh, they both lose. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah. We will we will cheer for them both to lose. <laughs> um, the Cardinals are hoping to win a trade. Uh, the the Pirates are not the only team to make an addition. Uh, last week on Friday, the Cardinals acquired a right-handed reliever from the Miami Marlins, Steve Ciszek. Uh I know you aren't the biggest fan of acquiring relievers via trade. What did you think of the deal? Yeah, I well, I, I my guard is up at re- acquiring relievers, and my, my general thinking on it is just that, you know, re- relievers are j- pretty much the, the most replaceable piece you have on a team, and uh, they don't have as large an impact on a game as, as other players do. They have some impact, sure, of course. But uh, I... So... What makes me nervous is just the what do you have to give up to acquire that reliever who's maybe going to be, you know, somewhat better, slightly better, marginally better than someone you have. That and, you know, relievers uh, are guys that they usually have fairly short careers, you know, guys who are truly relievers. Uh, you know, I mean, often they're, they're you know, they, they were starters, something didn't work out, they've, they've moved to the bullpen, or they have such a limited kind of repertoire or whatever, they've been kind of groomed as relievers. But, uh, you know, so a lot of times on these trades, you're acquiring a veteran guy who's kind of at the end of his uh, arc, you know, as a, as a useful reliever. And, and uh, many times an organization might have a younger guy who's just kind of starting his arc. And I just feel like a lot of times... You know, you see these guys acquired, and it's like, well, were they really that much better than what we had, etc. Now that said, uh, a lot of that comes back to well, what did you give up? And frankly, the Cardinals don't seem to have given up much at all for this. And you know, Steve Ciszek has been a, a very good pitcher, a very good relief pitcher over the last few years, um, though some bumps in the road earlier this year. So uh, you know, while I'm generally kind of leery of these deals. Um, on the balance sheet, uh, it'd be hard to it'd be hard to dislike this particular deal. Uh, what did you think? Um, you know, they they gave up a minor league reliever, and you mentioned a lot of times it doesn't work out for them as a starter, and they become a reliever. You know, I tend to be of the belief if you're trading a minor league reliever, you're in a good position because exactly. because that guy has already been pigeonholed into the relief role. Right. And Kyle Bearclaw, uh, or as the folks in the comments were calling him, just Bearclaw, uh, which is a very good nickname. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the Cardinals, uh, they drafted him, uh, and he had a very good fastball. And he has had a shoulder injury, and he's now uh, 25 years old, and double A and I don't want to say uh, that he has been bad but when you when you look at the walks that he has uh, he averages over five walks per nine innings for his minor league career with Springfield this year and it's only 24 and two-thirds innings but he had a 7.3 walk 
per nine inning rate. Uh, and uh, with Springfield this year, and in Palm Beach, his 15 innings there, it was 5.4. Uh, last year with Palm Beach, in 18 innings, it was 5.4. And with Peoria, in 40, it was 5.2. And so you're seeing a real problem there with command. And if you're trading a reliever, I think you're usually in a pretty good spot. If you're trading a reliever who's walking five or seven batters per nine innings, uh-huh. you're in an even better spot. And I don't, I don't want to disparage him as a prospect or you know, what his potential could be because he throws hard. He has a live arm. But he's, he's that type of lottery ticket where you know, it's a hard thrower. And if you can harness that, you might have something. But right now, that looks like a big, uh, a big if. And uh-huh. so I think the Cardinals, this is one of those deals, and it seems like John Mosellock makes these type of deals when he's bringing relievers in from outside the organization, where he just doesn't seem to give up much to bring them in. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, he, he does these trades right. And so, um, yeah, I know for, for myself, it most called to mind the uh, Michael Blazek uh, John Axford trade, you know, uh, kind of former closer who's maybe a little bit diminished, or at least there's some serious question marks about in exchange for uh, a guy who only projects as a bullpen arm. And even then, Blazek had already, uh, you know, had some stints uh, in St. Louis, so you'd have to say he was a little further along development-wise than uh, than Bearclaw, uh, you know. And and of course, this year Michael Blazek is having a pretty good year for the Brewers, you know, and so they're, they are getting some value out of that. But uh, obviously John Axford was a very uh, important part of a, you know, significant postseason run in St. Louis. And so I don't think there's a lot of Cardinals fans that are probably watching Brewers games this year saying, oh, man, if, on, if only we'd held on to Michael Blazek, you know. So, um, so yeah, and really that's probably the best-case scenario uh, for Miami in terms of how this deal works out. You know, I think, you know, you know what Michael Blazek's doing this season. That's probably the best case scenario of where Bearclaw could you know could get to. So, yeah, good deal. And I think the reason the the Cardinals were able to do that, the Marlins were looking to dump salary. Mm-hmm. And uh, with Cishek, he he became arbitration eligible a couple seasons ago. Uh, he's going to earn six point six five million dollars over the the totality of the 2015 season. The Cardinals will play a pay a pro rated share of that, so probably $2 million-ish uh, in there somewhere. Um, but more importantly than that, the fact that C-Sheck is under control and arbitration eligible for both the 2016 and 2017 season. And the arbitration process is a type that tends to overvalue the save. And you can see that with C-Sheck. Well, what happens with a guy who earned his arbitration salary uh, because of his saves mm-hmm. when he's no longer going to get those? Mm-hmm. And so I suspect that Miami had made the decision that they were not going to tender him a contract mm-hmm. after this season because of his issues. He was demoted down to the minors and had to work through them. And they didn't want to pay for that. And so why not just get a lottery ticket if the Cardinals are willing to take on the remainder of his salary? Mm-hmm. And they can make a decision about non-tendering him or tendering him a contract right. uh, later on in the wintertime. And so mm-hmm. 
You know, right now, I wouldn't be surprised if the Cardinals wound up not tendering yeah. uh, c a contract. Yeah. Uh, but that's kind of secondary right now. You know, if something right. goes wrong with Walden's shoulder, um, they may feel they need to do that. Mm-hmm. But um, right now, they got him to shore up this bullpen uh, that has been overall not overused, but parts of it have. I mean, the Cardinals' total bullpen workload in terms of innings pitched, and we're recording this during Sunday Night Baseball, so this isn't, you know, all the teams have not finished their games uh, on this Sunday, uh, but on MLB.com, the Cardinals are 19th in baseball in relievers, reliever innings pitched, so they're in the middle third towards the end of it and almost in the bottom third in terms of overall reliever innings pitched. Uh, But it's not overall reliever usage that's been a problem. It's been the uh, very heightened workload for a handful of the most trusted bullpenners in the relief corps. Uh And that's Seth Manis, Kevin Segrist, uh, Trevor Rosenthal, and Choate's up there in appearances, but He's a creature unto his own, so he it's kind of like comparing apples to fire trucks and right. <laughs> uh but uh Manus and Kevin Segrist are tied for the major league lead in reliever appearances with fifty apiece. And uh with the ties and appearance numbers, uh, Trevor Rosenthal is tied for sixteenth. So he's one of the sixteen most used relievers in all of baseball uh, so far this year. And so part of that is Jordan Walden getting injured and then Matt Belial getting injured. And, you know, some of the relievers that they've called up from the minors are starting to earn some trust, but Matheny has been very staunch in his use of certain guys in certain situations. Yeah. Well, it just it gets back to that just way we see Matheny doing business with this guys have roles and I'm going to use these guys in these roles and it just seems like if there's you know anything that he's not uh, you know if there's one thing in particular I should say that he's not great at managing it's uh, you know uh, taking guys out of their roles or understanding you know well when is it ideal to think maybe long term as opposed to short term or or whatnot and that's the one part of this C-Shack deal that uh, what is I going to say I don't like, but it almost frustrates me because I, it feels to me like, in some ways, like another one of those deals where, well, let's bring in this guy who has a closer pedigree, uh, who we think is somebody the manager will trust, so they'll actually use him because, uh, you know, some of these other guys, your, your Sokoloviches, your Tui Valalas, etc., um, you know, just whoever those kind of uh, extra guys are in the bullpen, they just do not get used that, that often. And I don't even think it's necessarily about trust, uh, but it's just more about role. And so, you know, Mike Matheny's decided, well, Kevin Segrist is my eighth inning guy. So Kevin Segrist is going to be his eighth inning guy. And he just has a very difficult time, you know, thinking, well, you know, Segrist has pitched, you know, two, three days in a row. You know, and you'll see even in a game, you know, they might be up, you know, two, three runs or so. Well, why not put Tui Valala in there? You know, why not put one of these other guys in there? You, you still have an opportunity to make a change, etc., um, you know, just just to again better balance out those workloads because those those numbers are alarming. Uh, you know, and the just the, the innings pitched and the workload on those on those arms because obviously those are 
those are really valuable pieces, and we certainly don't want you know one of those guys to go down if if it can at all be avoided. So. And I, I think that's an interesting point. It's you know how do you define the role, right? And how do you plan for the long term? And Derek Gould wrote that article in the St. Louis Post Dispatch uh, about reliever usage and how they track you know innings pitches. They also keep track of whether or not a reliever got loose or hot, warm enough so that he could enter the game. Uh, on a given night, even if he did not enter the game. Uh, they count that as usage, which I think is wise. Mm-hmm. But then Matheny also goes around and asks them if they're ready to go, and that seems right. to be kind of the definitive uh, word on whether or not they can be used in that game. And Matheny was very candid. He said, we're trying to bank as many wins as we can, uh, so when we're ahead, we're going to use these guys so we can bank wins. And in a lot of ways, it sounded almost like the anti-Larusa, and that's not to say that Larusa did not have his roles for guys. He absolutely did. Uh-huh. Um, but Larusa always played the long game, uh-huh. and yep. I think he was perhaps a little bit more flexible in when he was using players, uh, as opposed to when Matheny has done it. And this year, it's a little bit trickier because of the injuries to Belial, the injury to Walden. Uh, they're you know, Mitch Harris is not very good. He doesn't look very good. Sokolovich, uh, I think he's kind of iffy, too. I think Tui Valala was iffy his first call-up. He's looked a lot better this time. It looks like he's really repeating his motion better and spotting his pitches better. And that's very enticing. I think he, he has a bright future in the bullpen. Uh-huh. Um, but it is kind of, a, you know, maybe with a three-run lead, you can yeah. go to one of those guys instead of Seacrest or instead of Manus. And uh-huh. remember, Seacrest had arm issues last year. Uh-huh. And it just kind of it makes me wonder how much more he'll be able to take. Um, but that's clearly why they added Seashek. And they hope Walden is going to be able to join the team. He's doing a rehab stint right now. And if you're able to add Walden and Seashek, all of a sudden this bullpen, which has been very, very good this year, uh-huh. is looking like an elite, you know, one of the best bullpens uh, in the game if Seashek and Walden come in and yeah. pitch uh, like they have in years past. Uh-huh. And that's, uh, with Seashek and Walden, that's probably a little bit of uh, an iffy proposition. Walden has the shoulder issue, uh, the strain, and the health question mark. And Seashek just has the effectiveness question mark. Although, after his demotion to the minors, he's turned things around. Uh, Nick Lampy wrote a very good article on Saturday about him being a bounce-back candidate with the Cardinals. And it made me pretty optimistic. But that's clearly, the Cardinals have bolstered that bullpen. And I'll tell you what, they're going to have to take one of those starters and put him in that bullpen come the postseason. And then it's going to be even right. better. Yeah. Well, to say nothing of Marco Gonzalez, who I think by the postseason, assuming of course health continues and he, you know, he's effective, I think, you know, he'll he'll find a way back onto this team, of course, um, you know. So yeah, it's you know a lot of a lot of good options out there, and let's hope the manager uses them and spreads out the the use of them judiciously. So uh, thumb up or thumb down, Ben, on the trade? Oh, definitely thumb up. I mean, just given what we. You know, I mean, really, when you look at a trade, it is a kind of a balance sheet thing, right? And so just in terms of is what we what we got better than what we gave up. And I think it clearly is 
as you said, the Marlins were prim- this was primarily a salary dump for them, and it's not a huge amount of salary that the Cardinals were taking on, and it's only for the rest of this season. So, you know, there's really just almost nothing not to like about it. Um, I was just using it as somewhat as a jumping off point to criticize the manager for his general bullpen usage. So <laughs> that's the only respect in which I, uh, uh, I, I did not like it. But no, good trade. I'm going to give it the thumbs up also. Uh, I tend to not like bringing a re- reliever in from outside the organization, whether it's via free agency or via trade. Uh, but as I say that, I thought the Axford trade was a good one that you yep. brought up earlier. Yep. Um, I thought the Edward Mojica trade was a pretty good one, mm-hmm. giving up Zach Cox, who was a busted first-round draft pick, not giving much up in other words. Yeah. Uh, and I liked the Matt Belial contract, and Belial has shown why. It's, it was one mm-hmm. year. It was for, I believe, $3.5 million. And he has now suffered this injury, and the Cardinals won't – it. It looks like it's going to be pretty bad. They put him on the 60-day disabled list, uh, and it looks like you know he could have a serious injury that could keep him out for the rest of the year, if not longer, and the well, Cardinals aren't going to be on the hook for his salary after that. And so when you've got this sort of short-term yeah. commitment and flexibility, which they have with Ciszek too, they mm-hmm. don't have to bring him back and pay him if they don't want to. Now, Ciszek's essentially going to be like a free agent, really, at the end of the season, right? I mean, they have no obligation to him, is what I'm saying, so... Their desire to bring him back in a lot of ways, it's you know just well, how much do they want Steve Ciszek on the team? And were he non-tendered by the Marlins, likely, again, assuming the Cardinals don't go the arbitration route, they'd be in the same boat they would be with him uh, otherwise. So, um, so yeah, I mean, if he's a pitcher they decide they really like and they, they think he's a good piece, yeah, they could go out and get him, but um, no obligation. And the, it's, it's very similar to the Axford situation. Mm-hmm where they non-tendered him because of what they would have had to pay him. Mm -hmm. And then he becomes a free agent. And there may have been interest on the Mm -hmm. Cardinals' part in bringing him back at a lesser salary, but then, you know, he signed that contract uh, to close with Cleveland, and the Cardinals weren't going to match that. So uh, he signed elsewhere. And so it is similar to that dynamic again, Mm -hmm. uh, that Axford trade uh, on the back end after... The season, it will be similar uh, to the situation with Axford. Right. Well, and and that even calls to mind Pat Neshek to some extent. I mean, a, a reliever they went out and got via free agency had a great season, raised his value, and they understood that. And and I think you know John Mozeliak and I are on the same page in terms of the overall value of relievers and how kind of more easily replaceable they are than certain other pieces. And I think that's why I'm sure they would have loved to have uh, Pat Neshek back, but you know just. A relief pitcher was just not going to be worth what they were going to have to have to pay for him, you know, for a relief pitcher in that particular role. And um, as such, they've just you know they just keep rolling, keep you know filling in that bullpen, and you know occasionally bringing in these outside pieces. But it's you know what can you say? It's it's been pretty effective. Uh, and Mosellock might not be done. Uh, the trade deadline is this coming Friday, uh, and he was on KMOX. This morning, uh, KMOX, I I was unable to catch the uh, interview online streaming it, Uh, but KMOX Sports tweeted out uh, something that Mosellock said during the interview, and he said, we are certainly going to try and make a move before the deadline. And I thought to myself, well, duh. Mm -hmm. It's like news, non-news. Of course, 
you know, John Mozeliak did not execute the C-ship trade and unplug all the communications in the Cardinals front office right. and say, all right, guys, we're going to take a vacation here for the next week because we've done all we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, he's still going to be out there exploring deals. That doesn't mean he will make a trade. It means he's going to be trying to improve the team at a price he feels is appropriate. And I think that's uh, what might be described as due diligence. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, I believe it was Ken Rosenthal did an interview on uh, foxsports.com, or not an interview, a segment, you know, they do the videos now, uh, and he indicated the Cardinals were no longer in the starting pitcher market because of Jaime Garcia and Marco Gonzalez's uh, progress. I would say Tim Cooney might have also factored into that. Yeah. Um, and so when you look at where they might improve, you know, the, the bullpen has been uh-huh. improved. Maybe a bench player, uh-huh. uh, maybe a first baseman. I, I think first base, I've declared that the weakest link. Sure, yeah. Well, it certainly is. It certainly is. And, um, you know, and obviously they now have brought Piscotti in to kind of give him a shot there. So um, I, I, the timing of that is a little bit interesting in relation to the trade deadline, I think. Um, I mean, he, he he certainly represents the last best hope of an internal solution at first base. So, uh, you know, bringing him up just before the trade deadline, you know, how does that affect to what extent they, you know, feel they need to pursue someone? Does his performance in the, you know, just these, you know, small handful of games before the trade deadline, uh, you know, does that, does that bear any weight? I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I almost wonder if it's a negotiating tactic. I mean, I, I don't think they're doing this just to say, look, we're going to play Piscotti here yep. to potential trade partners. Yep. I don't think that at all. Yep. Uh, but I, sh- I shouldn't have said just a negotiating con- uh, tactic. But I, I think they want to see what they have. But if mm-hmm. you look at the, you know, and I wrote a post about this, I don't understand the way that they've handled this at all. And I think... And we talked, Craig and I talked about it on the podcast last week. I mean, at a minimum, you should have tried him out once you lost Adams for the year. You Mm -hmm. should have started the process then. But I think if you were willing to do it and the manager was endorsing the move uh, back early in the winter, Uh why not just steal a game a week with him or two games a week with him in Memphis Uh and and just have him try his hand at it? Because you were talking about some of the plays he's made where he just doesn't seem to have the awareness of his surroundings that a more seasoned first baseman would have. Well, it was interesting in, in his uh, game today, his first uh, start, uh, start at first base, and just watching him there. And, and I thought he generally looked you know, pretty good, just kind of as when I saw him uh, here down in the minors. But he, there was one play, and it was very similar to something I saw here, on a ball kind of into the hole where he just went way too far you know, towards second base. For this for this ball and in this one he kind of seemed to realize what he was doing and he kind of pulled up didn't really have anything to do with it uh, Colton Wong fielded it and luckily I believe Waka was still in the game at that point I think it was Waka who who came over and uh, whoever the pitcher was you know came over and covered first base and they got the out but that definitely seemed like one just kind of situational thing from playing first base that he doesn't you know yet know that you know as a first baseman there's there's balls you could get to that you don't always 
you know, you don't always go for that ball because it's, you know, you're going to take yourself out of position. And really, he's been in the outfield. In the outfield, you're going to, you know, you're going to get to any ball you can get to. Really, as a third baseman, same same thing. You know, any ball you can get your glove on, you're going to get your glove on. So it would make sense that that one particular play is something that's kind of out of his comfort zone or, you know, gauging that. But um, it's interesting what you said about negotiating tactic because I have to admit that to some extent entered my mind as well, you know, because there, it is a pretty glaring need. So, you know, as I imagine, you know, John Moseliak on the horn with the various GMs, right? And if he's trying to acquire a first baseman, you know, it's kind of like, well, if I don't give you this guy, what, you know, what are your options, you know? And I think for Moseliak to say like, ah, well, you know, we got Xavier Scruggs, you know, I think he's going to, you know, or, you know, Reynolds and Scruggs are going to handle it. I mean, there just wasn't a lot there. And so it was, a little more clear that they were perhaps over a barrel in that position, while Piscotti, um, either as a legitimate option or even just the idea of Piscotti at first base, you know, uh, and, and certainly he could be a legitimate option there. So it does, uh, but at the very least, it, it, it seems like it could enter into uh, a trade discussion like that, could give him a little bit of leverage there, you know, give the threat to walk away from the table a little more, uh, you know, a little more juice, I guess. I don't know. So you don't think Mosaic saying Dan Johnson? I don't think the name Dan Johnson has probably come up too much uh, in these in these conversations. So I have to admit, every uh, you know, and, and Dan Johnson, uh, you know, with Piscotti's sort of neck injury, had uh, you know has had you know starred and then had a he pinch hit today in that kind of weird like almost double switch situation that happened. And, and and I have to admit, every time I see Dan Johnson step to the plate, I think. I'm watching Dan Johnson's last at bat, major league at bat. You know, I just think he's probably that's probably where he's where he's headed. So, um, anyway. yeah, he's uh, they signed him as a minor league free agent uh-huh. uh, after Adams went down, um, and or in May, I think it was right after Adams went down. And there's little, it, it, there just isn't much there. Yeah, yeah, uh, you know. Yeah, and that was really kind of almost an emergency signing anyway. That was just a, hey, we don't have any depth at all here. So, you know, we need, like, a warm body who can fill in here. And so we'll see. But I don't know. What do you, how do you feel about uh, Piscotti? Uh, you know, assuming that there's no kind of acquisition made, do you think he becomes that everyday first baseman for the rest of the season? Or Well, if Reynolds is injured, he got hit in the hand, uh, in the wrist area. He was unavailable today. Uh, we don't know the extent of that injury. I mean, I think it's him. Yeah. Uh, but I think it would have been him anyway because Reynolds is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Piscotti overall is probably an upgrade over Reynolds. And I think, you know, I think getting him the the at bats uh, in the majors and getting him that exposure and having him be better than Reynolds while getting that exposure in terms of offense, and I think he's athletic enough and smart enough, I think he'll pick up the position. Yeah. Um, now, whether or not he shows he can consistently scoop balls in the dirt and shows that he has the footwork necessary and shows he can make those throws on the infield, which were an issue for him some when he made all those errors at third base during his uh, limited initial exposure to pro baseball, you know, all of those are legitimate questions, but I, I'm kind of hopeful that it will work out, basically because I want the Cardinals to sign Jason Hayward, and I just uh-huh. want Steven Sp- Piscotti to probably be the starting first baseman until maybe 
uh, Matt Holiday goes elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you you look at that. I I'm okay with it going forward. Mm-hmm. And if it's a choice between you know him and a lesser bench bat who's like a left-handed hitting first baseman, you know, it depend. It would probably depend on the splits. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how I would fall on that, but you know, like right now, if you can get Adam Lind, I think you have to do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm okay with that. But uh-huh. if you know, if the Brewers are holding out hope, or it gets into a bidding war, and Adam Lind is an expensive get, yeah. You know, I'm okay rolling with Piscotti, yeah. and you know, let the chips fall where they may. Um, now, I, I would assume that internally they have a better idea of where he is as a fielder uh-huh. at first base than we do. Um, and I think that will probably be one of the primary driving forces behind what they do at the trade deadline. But I think Mark Reynolds getting hit in the hand, I mean, that has the potential to make it an immediate need. Right. Some sort of veteran, uh-huh. maybe a vet, veteran left-handed hitter who kills right-handed pitching, you know, just something, uh, someone who is a viable option other than Piscotti. Because okay. I think if you get, you know, Dan Johnson isn't. Right. You know, and if Piscotti doesn't work out, and keep in mind, you know, adjusting to major league pitching is hard. Uh-huh. Uh, but if they, I, I would be okay doing it. Um you know, whether or not Mike Matheny will be. I mean, you'll recall they promoted Colton Wong in 2013 uh, with the hopes of injecting some speed and energy and defense into the lineup and moving Matt Carpenter to third and David Freeze to the bench. That lasted just a handful of games. When Wong struggled, Matheny buried him on the bench and went with the proven veteran. Uh-huh. So if Piscotti hits a rough patch, you know, I could see... Matheny doing the same thing with Mark Reynolds, maybe even Dan Johnson, uh, or any other veteran you might acquire. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's been his pattern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, basically, in order to clear space for a young player, they have to trade away the more established player. Right. You know, that's become kind of... <laughs> uh, maybe it's a little too early yet to call it a pattern, but with David Freeze. Uh-huh. And then with Alan Craig, um, that's yeah. what they had to do. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're going to trade Mark Reynolds. I'm just saying, right. you know, Matheny isn't going to let Piscotti sink or swim. If, if it looks like Piscotti uh-huh. is starting to sink, Matheny's uh-huh. going to bury him on the bench and use him sparingly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, that said, and, and this is all, uh, everything is such, such small, you know, sample sizes and everything with Piscotti at this point. But I have to say, just a couple of things that make me optimistic. One, the fact that they promoted him after so few games at first base in the minor leagues. I feel like they had to feel some comfort level with his play there, um, which wasn't necessarily a given when they said they were going to try him out there. Um, so that, so I feel like, well, that's, that's positive. That suggests the organization feels like, yeah, he can handle this. Um, you know, and, and just his very limited kind of plate appearances he's had so far in the major leagues... I, this is again completely anecdotal, but I think he looks pretty good, you know. And Piscotti's the type of hitter; he's just a he's a you know he's what they would call a good professional. He takes a good professional at bat, you know. He can use all fields, um, you know. I feel like his is a game that is more likely to transition 
easily from the minor leagues to the major leagues than uh, certain other you know types of hitters who might have very high skill levels in certain areas, but uh, you know more holes uh, that could be exploited overall. I feel like Piscotty has a little bit less of that. I don't know. Again, knock on wood. I mean, he could you know just you know they they figure something out they attack him he can't adjust and it, you know it, it could all go very wrong certainly but i'm saying so far i, I certainly have reason to be optimistic uh, about him and and, I, and certainly i had i was very optimistic about him in the longer term but even in the very short term of just him staying on the roster maybe even becoming the primary starting first baseman for the rest of the season and being you know being effective i i'm optimistic that that's you know a decent shot whereas a few weeks ago it was like hey maybe we'll try him at first base I thought, well, that could work, but it seemed like there were more question marks about it then. So if we want to call it an experiment moving him to first base, I think so far the experiment is going well. Yeah, I think it's going pretty well too, uh, but I wish they would have had an answer two months ago to that question, or a month ago, or even two weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, You know. Right. Or one that that was a little bit more reassuring. Um, But I'm not going to be at all surprised if they bring in an everyday type of player uh, to take over at first base. Uh, we'll see what John Mozeliak can do, and we'll see what the asking price is and what the Cardinals uh, potentially have to give up. Um, you know, one area where they have upgraded uh, is getting Matt Holiday back and then shifting Randall Gritchick to center field. Center field had not been a good position for the Cardinals, if, if first base is the weakest link, center field offensively has been the second weakest link. John Jay has been absolutely horrendous this year. Uh, the handling of him post-wrist uh, injury and wrist surgery has been pretty nonsensical as well. Um, you know, rushing him back after the surgery, uh, continuing to play every day, even though you know he has an injury after he got back from the disabled list and it's still bothering him, and now he's on the disabled list again. Um, and listening to John Mosellock talk, it sounds like maybe mid-August before he even picks up a bat again. No. Uh, but in the meantime, Randall Gritchick has taken over in center field, and he's continued to hit. And I know that he is doing more and more every day to convince you yes. that he is a... Uh, he is going to be a viable starting major leaguer. He is, he is. And, you know, I've really come a long ways on Randall Gritchick. I was quite frustrated last year with uh, with him and with the the amount of, of at-bats he got. And I, you know, felt like he, you know, could so clearly, uh, pitchers could just take advantage of him. You know, he would look so bad. Um, you know, all the strikeouts, couldn't handle curveballs, swings at balls way out of the zone. And I just felt like, well, you know, yeah, he's got some skills, but he's just not, you know, it's just not there. And I, I'm coming around on him this year. And I, I've, one thing I just, I started wondering the other day is, you know, just thinking about his skill set. And two, he had two really ridiculous numbers right now, his, his isolated power and his strikeout rate. Are both you know pretty pretty high in their in their own regards, um, and so I a couple days ago I just was curious I wanted to look up how many major leaguers had the, uh, for a full season had his isolated power and his strikeout rate. So I, and I did this on on Saturday and so uh, or I think it was Saturday I did it a day or two ago so the numbers changed but I used the numbers as of that day and at the time 
uh, I came up with a grand total of eight players had ever had a, a, a full major league season at his current isolated power and strikeout rate. And so I looked at it, and it was it, maybe not an unsurprising list. Names on there, uh, Chris Davis, his you know big season that he had, Jim Tomey, Ryan Howard, two Adam Dunn seasons on there, which really, if you're going to have a poster child for huge ISO, huge strikeout rate, that's probably him. Uh, our good friend Mark Reynolds had a season, uh, season like that. Carlos Pena. And then actually, the, the last one that sort of came up on this list is, is actually 2015 Giancarlo Stanton as well. Because Stanton is also striking out 30% of the time this year. Um, he has an even bigger uh, ISO than, than Grichuk does, you know, because he's a, a giant who plays baseball. Um, but it, that, that was interesting to me. And it just, it, you know, it was just another kind of, another piece that just has me seeing Grichuk as in the, as the same type of player, I guess is what I want to say. As to a lesser extent, Stanton, but I think Jock Peterson is in there as well. And what I think sets these guys apart and potentially makes them valuable, despite those enormous strikeout rates, is they uh, they're they're excellent base runners. They're very good base runners. They're very good uh, defensively as well. Now all those other guys on that list I named, all those you know big kind of lumbering corner infield guys I mentioned, those guys were not good defensively and and not good base runners as well. So their, their value was really limited to their power, and, and then that was kind of mitigated to some extent by their, uh, you know, by their huge strikeout rates, okay? So, so Grichuk, I feel like he's in that conversation where his, his, his base running skill, his defensive skill, coupled with that huge power skill, I feel like, you know what, it's not a tool set that we see all the time. It's not one that maybe I have, a, I have necessarily had a framework for in my mind, but I think there, there can be value there. Now the two, because I know you're going to bring him up anyway, the two, I feel like the two big caveats with that, the one way Grichuk is really set apart from all these guys I've mentioned is his walk rate. His walk rate has been consistently lower. Um, you, most of these guys have at least around like a 10% walk rate. Okay. Well, Grichuk's has ticked up a bit. It's up, it's up over 6%. I believe right now. Actually, I'm just looking at his page right now. He's at 6.3% right now. Okay, that probably still needs to come up. I think that's probably still a, you know a, a little low there. Uh, and of course, his his batting average on balls in play is 372 right now, which is which is quite high as well. That's likely to drop. That's likely to decrease these other things too. But you know, I think there's a there was a point in my view of Randall Grichuk where I felt like this guy might not even be sustainably a major league player. Like, despite his high skills, he might not be able to accrue value at a major league level because of those giant gaps in his game. And I guess what I'm saying is my understanding of what his skills are uh, and, and I think some legitimate growth in what those skill areas are have gotten big enough that uh, I, I feel like, yeah, he is a legitimate major league player going forward. And you know has the potential to be be valuable. Now, not not necessarily an all star, not necessarily great, but um, I mean at this point, I I have no question that he is the best option in center field for the St. Louis Cardinals on a, on a daily basis. I mean I believe he's number two in WAR currently on the team this season. Um, you know there's there's I, I'm I'm becoming more of a believer. I guess I'll I'll leave it at that. <laughs> you less so though still. Right. Well, no, I mean, I've said all along, the question is whether or not he can hit for enough power to justify the outs he is making. Mm-hmm. 
and his uh, walk rate has gone up, which is very heartening. Uh, none of the projection systems expect that to continue. Um, but the other part of that is when you only have a 6.3% walk rate, mm -hmm. what is your on-base? Everyone's on-base percentage to a large degree is dependent on batting average. Mm -hmm. But if you're someone like Matt Holliday or Matt Carpenter, where you're walking 10 plus percent of the time, mm -hmm. you've got a little bit of a cushion for when your batting average on balls and play drops and your batting average drops. Mm -hmm. And we saw it with Carpenter from 2013 to 2014. His batting average on balls and play dropped, and his batting average dropped quite a bit. But he was still a very valuable offensive player because he was getting on base at a high rate. He was not making outs at a high rate. And you look at, you know, just comparing the two, uh, Grichik has a 372 batting average on balls and play. The league average is typically around 300, okay? And you might be saying, well, he hits the ball really hard, so his hits are more likely to, to you know, when he puts the ball in play, it's more likely to be a hit. Well, you know, I assume last year he probably was able to hit AAA pitching hard because it's not as good as major league pitching. His batting average on balls in play was 289. In AA in 2013, I assume he would be able to hit AA pitching pretty well too. Betting average on balls in play was 272. In high A, it was 329, which is above average, but still nowhere near the stratospheric levels of 372. And just for fun, do you know how many players with at least 1,000 plate appearances have a career batting average on balls in play over 350? Uh, Tony Gwynn? I don't know. <laughs> there are 27 Okay. in the history of baseball. Are they all Tony Gwynn? No, they aren't all Tony Gwynn. I mean, like, there are some, you know, there are, there are some very old players like Ty Cobb, uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson's on that list, Rod Carew. There are some more recent players. Yasiel Puig is on the list. Uh -huh. uh, Mike Trout is, too. Um, so, you know, but it's, it's one of those things. A thousand plate appearances and a batting average on balls in play over 370, which is what Grichik has now, there are four players in history. You know, and if you want to bump, so that's about what? About two seasons worth of plate appearances. And so you also compare that to the backdrop of he hasn't done this in the minors before. Um, but if we increase our threshold to 1,500 plate appearances as the cutoff. I mean, you've still got those, you know, those four Hall of Famers, um, but you reduce the number of folks above 350 by five. Um, and it's just one of those things where it's so rare to have a batting average on balls in play that is as high as Randall Grichik's is this year. He needs a batting average on balls in play that high to have just a 281 average, which is not bad at all. Uh -huh. And that's not what I'm trying to say. Uh -huh. But normally when you see guys who have a batting average on balls in play that's this high, you're seeing a batting average that's 325 or higher. Uh -huh. And so when you look at what will happen when that batting average on balls in play drops, and it will, it's just a question of how much. Uh -huh. And you're going to see everything fall. And the projection systems 
you know, Zips is more a believer in Randall Gritchick than Steamer. Okay, Zips foresees the rest of the season a 255 batting average, a 296 on base percentage, and a 458 slugging percentage, which is about a 107 weighted runs created plus. So uh-huh. about 7% better than average. With his defense and base running, that's a nice player to yeah. have yeah. Uh, in center field. Steamer, on the other hand, uh, a bit more pessimistic. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Uh, they see his batting average on balls in play around 278 the rest of the way. And I should say Zips has adjusted him down to 302, so about league average the rest of the way is what they project. This Zips projects. Steamer projects a 278 batting average on balls in play. That drops his batting average to 237, his on base percentage to 279, and his slugging to 418. That's a 91 weighted runs created plus. That's 9% below average. And so I just look at it. He's he, I find it highly unlikely that he will have a 281 isolated power at the end of the year. I think right. he will probably not even have a 250 isolated power at the end of the year. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I certainly don't think he'll have one above 250 at the end of next year. Uh-huh. You know, if we want to get more long term with it. And. I also think he's probably not going to have a batting average on balls in play much above, even if we assume it's above average because he hits the ball hard and he runs fast. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to be much above 320, 330. Mm-hmm. And when you drop that down, I mean, I think he's probably a little bit above average as a hitter. And if mm-hmm. he's a little bit above average as a hitter with his defensive skill and base running, that's a nice center fielder. Right, right. So, you know, that, but that's a nice player. That's kind of the way that I viewed him. Uh, you know, I was, I was going to say I, I viewed him as a nice bench player. Mm-hmm. But that was when I thought, you know, John Jay is going to be mm-hmm. uh, patrolling center field for the most part. Yeah. Um, and I just, that batting average on balls in play is just a flashing red light. It's mm-hmm. not going to be that high. In fact, right. it almost makes me think maybe the Cardinals should consider trading him. But he's so cheap mm-hmm. uh, that I I don't really think it's that egregious. But you know, don't be disappointed when Randall Grichik is never this good again. That's all I will tell people. Sure, but he's good enough now that he could st- he you know he he there's more sink there possible where he's still you know this is this is still our starting center fielder and and like I said for me that's even. Uh, th- that's better than I was anticipating really coming into the season. So, and you know, and and I don't want to sound like part of the Fox Sports Midwest crew here saying this, but uh, you know, the other thing I, I do like about him is I feel like there is, I don't know if upside is quite the right word there, but I mean, he has some of the tools that he has are are prodigious, you know, and so I think there we can do a little bit of wishing on him, and it's probably mostly just wishing, but. Um, you know, there's uh, if you know if he can, you know, if he could raise his walk rate to ten percent, you know, which <laughs> which you know, yeah. when you know he probably can't, right? Okay. Right. But you know, that's you know that's potentially like you're you're starting to talk about like all star level player there, okay? Whatever. That's maybe again that's that's wish casting, all right? But you compare him to most other major league type players and let's just focus on our you know potential center fielders you know John Jay Peter Borges etc 
Randall Gritchuk is exciting in part because there's more latitude in terms of what he what he could be. You know, yep. John Jay is not going to be. Well, frankly, we've seen John Jay. We've seen peak John Jay already. All right. I think we probably have seen peak Peter Borges already, or at the very least, we have a pretty we have a better idea of what Peter Borges could be. The range of possible outcomes for Peter Borges is relatively narrow. The range of outcomes for Randall Gritchuk is still is still fairly large, and for me, this season has actually eliminated some of the lowest end range of that outcome and that's what's which what i guess has me you know ex- excited about him um so anyway team lambo team lambo all the way oh i hope you're right i mean <laughs> but you know you you've got that 30 percent k rate and he swings and misses a lot i'm the bet i get excited when he walks because yeah. i want that walk rate to creep up you know yeah. um well, and I do appreciate that you haven't let listeners know that I am wearing a Gritchuk jersey and a soul patch as we've had this whole conversation. So, that I, I appreciate that. He he dyed his Spezio fake soul patch black, so from red, so it would look more like Randall Gritchuk. Right. It came in handy because, frankly, the Spezio soul patch, well, people weren't even getting that reference anymore. So it's nice that I was able to repurpose it as a as a Randall Gritchuk soul patch. Well, it is like a nine-year-old reference. Well, yeah, um, you know, I've got kids, so I don't always keep on top of the, you know, the latest <laughs> trends in pop culture. No, I, I am, I am already getting ready to defend Randall Gritchick as the starting center fielder when he no longer hits like this. Right. Like right. I'm, I'm ready for that discussion. Mm-hmm. It's just yeah. a matter of time before we have it. Because right. people are going to look at his batting average because oh, yeah. that's still what a lot of folks look at. Mm-hmm. And they're going to see that as a reason for him not to start. And I will probably defend him until his on-base percentage is so low that he's indefensible. But, you know, that's the question. The question is whether or not he can hit for enough power to justify all the outs he will make. Yep. And, you know, the outs are coming. It's just yep. a matter of time. They are. Because uh, that's the way he is, and that's the profile he has had uh, throughout much of his career. Um, you know, and you can look at high A, and maybe there's something there. Maybe that's the player that he's going to be. Um, you know, I think that's kind of like a, a best-case scenario for the profile that folks are talking about now. Yeah, and I don't know. I know I don't know enough about his minor league. I know there were injuries and there were things like that, but... Um, you know, I don't, I don't know enough about that to, you know, to speak in, uh, you know, reasonable terms. And you're right. And he played his AAA numbers, you know, last year where, I mean, he, you know, he played a, between AAA and St. Louis. I mean, he had a pretty full season there. And, you, and I mean, everything you say is true, Ben. Everything you say about the regression that's likely there is true. Um, but he set the bar pretty high at this point. So I think he can absorb a little more of that aggression than, re- regression, excuse me, than he could you know, last oh, year. Look, his end of the year line's gonna look great. That doesn't mean the next two right. months. Are <laughs> yeah, <be> exactly. Great. <laughs> yeah. Like I you know, I could see it going bad, but yeah. uh and I could see it going bad fast. But hopefully, you know, he's able to make those adjustments. They one of the reasons they traded for him was the fact that the double A staff was impressed with the adjustments that he made uh while he was in the Texas League with the Angels, which is a very a small league, so teams play each other a lot. Uh-huh. Uh, Derek Gould wrote about that in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And, you know, he was able to make adjustments to the way they were attacking him uh, so that, you know, he was able to be effective. 
you know, of course, then you look at his AAA numbers with the Cardinals last year, and he had a hot start, and then it just cratered out over the rest of the year, and you wonder where that ability to make adjustments went. Um, but, you know, apparently that was a skill he showed with the Angels, and uh, he seems to be making adjustments somewhat uh, to the majors, although maybe it's just a question of, I have very good bat speed, and I'm just going to swing really hard at the ball. Yeah. Uh, and my hand-eye coordination is such that it will take care of itself. But, yeah. you know, hopefully hopefully he's uh, he's able to keep things going. I, You know, that would be great for the Cardinals. If you have, if you have an outfield of Gritchick, Holiday, and Hayward hitting, you know, like they can potentially hit, that's a very good outfield. And you, you add that to Peralta, Wong, uh, you know, Matt Carpenter, who knows uh-huh. what exactly is going on there, uh, and then potentially another first baseman. You know, that's a tough lineup come the postseason. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but did you read Derek Gould's article in the Post-Dispatch about Carpenter? Yeah, I did read that. I did read that. It was, uh, it was, a, very, it was a very interesting read. Um, it... Uh, I don't know. There was there was a lot between the lines there, and um, I felt like there was a lot that was being strongly implied without being uh, directly said. And you know, and I think that's maybe not entirely. Uh, I mean, I, I understand. I guess what I'm saying is I understand why that was the case. You know, because obviously it sort of touched a little bit on on mental health, and um, you know, at least sort of suggested the you know. Um, Obviously, with Carpenter and his just the gigantic slump he's had, there was a lot of talk about, well, is he injured? Is he injured? And I felt like, I guess the thrust of the article was kind of suggesting, well, perhaps not a physical injury, but kind of leaving open the door anyway that could be something um, maybe mental health related that plays a factor with him. Was that was that kind of your interpretation? Uh, the article's called Carpenter Finding Himself as a Hitter. And I didn't, you know, I've been in a slump like what Carpenter's going through, and I think I kind of have the mindset that he does where I will overly dissect things uh, to try and get the answer that I need. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the best thing you can do is just let it all go. Don't think about any of it. Don't go in the batting cage and just go just go in there the next time and just hit, you know, almost like a reset button. Try to hit a mental reset button. Um I didn't think that they were walking up to the mental health issue part of it. Uh-huh. Although when you look at it as a whole with like his, the extreme fatigue uh-huh. diagnosis, um, you know, and some of the heart issues, I didn't see it that way at all. I saw it as Matheny being proactive, you know, with the mental aspect of Uh what players are doing because it's such an important part of the game right? and trying to help guys work through situations like this Uh in a personal way. Uh Because I think for a lot of times it's just like, you know, oh, just forget about it, you know, or, and there are all these, it's just kind of been a good old boys club and Uh you've got like, you need a slump buster and, you know, that's like how people deal with it. Right. And, Matheny's trying to take a more nuanced approach, and I think he should be applauded for that. Um, yeah. Well, and when I and and you know, and I, I I do think the article definitely touches on the issue, the idea of, of mental mental health. But I guess when I when I say that as well, I don't necessarily read that to mean like 
um, you know, me mental health disorder or anything like that. More just, you know, as you said, that the this kind of a more holistic approach to players' wellness and players, uh, you know, health and, and abilities. And it's it's an interesting area in that. You know, it, it's really amazing how professional athletes, how physical injury has been, you know, really turned into this thing that like, you know, oh, a guy has like this particular injury, like we know how long he's going to be out very accurately, you know, and they almost always hit somewhere close, you know, close to that. I mean, when you really consider, honestly, we're talking about like guy shreds his knee and like nine times out of 10, we can tell you, you know, within like two or three weeks when they're going to be, you know, on the field playing again. That's pretty amazing, just given how different human bodies are, how different people respond to things. But that's where, like, physical health has gotten, and we kind of have that expectation for that, right? So to, I, it's interesting for me to just think about, get over thinking more holistically about just mental health and, and everything, you know, where how, how that factors in, you know. It's kind of more of an unknown in, in that, uh, you know, as far as player wellness, I guess. I, I thought there was a really interesting Matheny quote um, where he said uh, in the Gould article, quote, I think that's the next frontier for us. If you say this game is even 80% mental, how much are we spending focusing on that 80% and how much are we focusing on that other 20? It's overwhelming. You spend 99% of your time focusing on that 20 I think there's going to be a shift. There has to be. I think I would kind of say I think 99% is an over-exaggeration. I mean, the amount of time they spend strategizing and talking about those types of things mm -hmm. with pitchers and even, you know, I don't know how much they do with hitters because we don't know what Mabry's approach is. But right. they're certainly talking about how, you know, how your plate approach is and those types of things. But I don't disagree with the idea that the vast majority of time they are spending on, you know, the physical aspects of sports, as you bring up. And I completely agree with Matheny. There needs to be uh, a shift in how you're handling this and what you're doing. Um, and so I thought it was interesting that, you know, they're sort of talking about this prolonged slump that Matt Carpenter's going through. Um, and, you know, Matheny, I think, even said some guys want to rehash, you know, every strike. Other guys, it's just water off a duck's back. Uh -huh. And, you know, they're out there the next day. And I was reminded of that Zach Grinke interview he did earlier this year where he said something like, he's played with a lot of stupid players, and I guarantee you that helped them succeed as baseball players. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think, you know, <laughs> stupid is maybe unfair, but just sort of an obliviousness or a lack they don't carry that with them you mm -hmm. know into the batter's box whatever happened right. last time doesn't matter mm -hmm. um, you know if they failed they, they are still going to be successful and it's just there are different personalities in the way you know and how do you strike the balance between you know and Carpenter described it in that article it's his greatest strength and his greatest weakness so how do you how do you help a player find the balance between the kind of analytical need to dissect things that he has, uh -huh. and that has been the foundation of his success. Uh -huh. uh, and then also putting that behind him and just going out there and, you know, using the positive outcome to propel him forward uh -huh. uh, and 
hopefully to have more positive outcomes. It's a very interesting question, and you're right. We can diagnose you know, all of these injuries and tell you when you'll be back from it, but how do you help a player uh, develop an approach, a mental approach, to a game that is defined by failure for a hitter so that he you know, doesn't beat himself up and is able to be successful? And I think it's a very interesting question, and I, I think it's a positive thing that Matheny is being proactive in trying to develop uh, a system, and the Cardinals as an organization have embraced that, uh, trying to develop uh, a system within the team, and even outside of the team. They allow help outside of the team, which I thought was interesting, uh, for players who feel that they need it and want to go that route. I, I think it's a very positive thing, and I think Matheny should be, and the front office should be, uh, praised for doing what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. Well, I'm looking at the clock, and we've been at this about long enough, I think, since this is kind of like take one and a half. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we, we had a good warm-up, so... Much like Matt Carpenter, we came in a little early today. We got some, we got some extra work in, and uh, I think it showed. I think we were in top form. <laughs> we'll let the listeners be the judge of that. Um, looking ahead, the Cardinals don't seem to be on Sunday night baseball for the next few weeks, so uh, look first to record on Sunday night and post the podcast on Sunday night. Uh, if you have a topic you'd like to hear us discuss, please shoot me an email. My email is veb.bgh at gmail.com. That's V-E-B is in Viva Albertos. B-G-H is in Ben G. Humphrey at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us on iTunes. If you do, please write us a review. It helps us climb up the charts. We're also on Stitcher. You can find us on buzzsprout.com. And, of course, you can listen at vivaalbertos.com. Uh, for Ben Godar, this is Ben Humphrey. Thanks for listening, and until next time, go Cardinals.